You're listening to The Leader's Table, a podcast by Leadership for Educational Equity. Hey, Cindy. Hey, Taylor. And hello to everyone listening out there. Yeah. Hey there, everyone. Taylor, are you ready for another great interview? I sure am. Well, in this conversation from the leader's table, Jason meets with Everton Blair. He is on the Gwinnett County School Board, and he represents five high schools and the accompanying elementary and middle schools that feed into them. Gwinnett County, that's right outside of Atlanta, Georgia, right? Yep, and it is the most diverse school system in Georgia. On top of that, Everton is actually serving the exact same area he went to school growing up in. Oh, wow, that's awesome. And that's all just the beginning of it. I can't wait for you to hear more about him. Well, then let's get to it. Okay, everyone, it's time to pull up a seat. Here's Jason Lorenz at the Leader's Table with Everton Blair. Everton Blair, welcome to the Leader's Table. Thank you for having me. It is such a pleasure, such an honor to have you on this podcast. And... I want to get right into it. You are the first black person and the first openly gay person to serve on the Gwinnett County School Board. And I can't help but be taken aback by the idea of being a first today at your age, right? Everything is wrong about that. When I look at Gwinnett County, the lynching project says that eight, at least eight that we know of, black people were lynched in Gwinnett County over the last 200 years. What an important thing that you're doing. And I wanted for you to share a little bit with us about how you came to be the Honorable Everton Blair out of Gwinnett County, elected to the school board, and what your path is. Well, I mean, my path is, to me, only possible because of the path before me and all of the people who sacrificed themselves so that we can be in a position where we could elect somebody like me. Um, It's not lost on me, that legacy of racial tyranny, which uh, includes every county in the South and includes Gwinnett County as well, um, which is why it was so important for me to speak to issues that I felt like were not being addressed in our communities and, and specifically talk to Black people about their experience in our county and in our community. Um, they're the, when I ran, they were the largest plurality group, racial group in, in the school system. And yet we had never had anyone who represented them or who had their lived experience uh, making the decisions at the table from the board level. So I think that was a real galvanizing moment for me to just um, see myself in that position and then and do something about it. I, I grew up in Gwinnett County at a time when it was changing so much um, and really diversifying and booming in population. So when I started in uh, kindergarten and then first grade in the county, um, I was the only black kid in the gifted program. Uh, The school, all of the schools were majority white. Um, By the time I was in middle school, it had diversified to about half and half. Um, And then when I graduated, uh, I graduated from the high school in 2009. And at that point, it was predominantly black, while also um, having a lot more diversity of Latino and Asian students. It's been powerful for me to see that shift in growth and also represent that change on the school board um, on the opposite end, on the leadership end. And I I think it's um, enabled me to 
to think more critically about what where our system needs to go from here and what new capacity we need to build to address 21st century challenges as somebody who both you know, grew up before and during the 21st century and is now shaping a system to empower students to be able to lead lives well into that century. So Everton, what in your childhood, the way you were raised, prepared you to be the leader you are today? Um, I am the oldest of four. I have always found myself in situations where I am around people much older than me. Um, I skipped a grade very early. Uh, I was put in advanced classes of the grades above me. I was kind of the teacher's student teacher <laughs> for most of my childhood experience, um, as well as I didn't have like a lot of cousins or siblings that were as close to me in age or grade. Um, so my uncles and aunts who were you know six or seven years older than me were the folks that I looked up to, hung around, and just learned a lot from uh, as a child. And I was never really afraid to talk to teachers uh, because my aunt was a teacher and I spent a lot of time in my early years with her. Are you the first in your family to run for office? Yes, to my knowledge. <laughs> How does that feel? Um, I don't think that I've really thought about it. I think for me, for a number of reasons, when, when you think about who has the opportunity to run for office, uh, you have, also have to square that with where family comes from and what opportunities they have had to both run and vote. And so there aren't very many generations actually in my family that would have even been able to. And so I'm really looking at my parents' generation and my grandparents. So for me to be the first to run, I think is more so a testament to how much progress we've made and what the opportunities are that allow somebody like me to be able to run that might not have existed before. I'm honored to be able to, and I was honored to have the support of all my family members and encouragement to do so. I think that they were just really surprised that I even thought about it. And to be transparent, so was I. It was something that I decided to do because I felt passionately about the issue and about the position. But, you know, it was never a decision that was made before then. How unique is it to be serving in a policymaking role, a monitoring role, over schools that you once attended and a place where you were also an educator. How, how important is that and how unique is that among others who serve? I feel so compelled to lead in a way that brings voices to the table that include mine. I mean, I go to my former high school, I go to my former middle school um, and elementary school, and I both see educators that taught me that now see an opportunity to be led in a way that really brings their voices to the table. And then students know who their board member is, <laughs> which is fascinating to me because when I was their age, I didn't even know that there was a school board. And so there's, there's, I think, a different moment now where I've been able to really bring in student voice and educator voice in communities that either have not had many opportunities to connect with elected leaders that have some decision-making power over their lives, over their professions, over their work, over the support that we give them. And then also students who see themselves in me in a way that I did not see myself in, in the elected leaders, which in part is just being visible and you know, approachable. Everton, walk us through your, your day, let's say from the time you wake up in the morning through, let's say about 2 p.m., 
knowing that you have both a school board job, you have a full-time job, you have family commitments. Um, what, what is that like? How do you balance and, and literally how do you, how do you spend those mornings knowing what's in front of you? It is a constant juggling act, but most mornings start with me checking both emails judiciously <laughs> um, just to be sure that I'm aware of everything that's going on with my full-time job, which is supporting educator cohorts across the country uh, and involves a good bit of travel and this school board work, which is so rooted in communities that I know deeply. People oftentimes will reach out regarding a variety of issues, some structural, some policy, but then some just like, I don't even understand who to go to for this issue, but I know that I voted for you, so please help me. And so it's keeping abreast of that. But no day looks the same. My full-time job is much more consistent, even though it used to involve a lot of travel. And the school board work is very heavy when it is heavy. So we'll have full days, full board days, which, you know, like many elected positions, You've got your busy, busy days, which are full of meetings, and then you've got your other ones, which are you know, full of more informal events and community events. And that's really the different take that I've had in the role, where I'm, I try to be very present. Even in my first year in office, I committed to visiting every school in my district. Um, I think I've got the most schools of a school board member in the state of Georgia. Uh, and so that was in itself a huge feat to just represent, you know, 250,000 students, parents, and constituents. Takes takes a good bit of time. Yeah. What do you hear from communities, families, kids, uh, teachers um, that makes you feel like it's worth it, like you're doing the right thing and where you are where you need to be today? People have shared that for the first time, somebody has said this, or um, I really feel like you have our back. Teachers especially will say that. Folks outside of my district will bring issues to me that they feel comfortable talking to me about. People who disagree with me but say, you know, I know you're somebody that even though I didn't vote for, I've seen what you do in the community and I appreciate that. I know that you'll take this request seriously. What is your favorite accomplishment on the school board so far? Within the first year of my time in office, we were able to have approved the equity office. Um, that office is led by our chief equity officer who reports directly to the superintendent. As I ran, not only was the preservation of excellence and high quality instruction incredibly important to me, I also wanted to be sure that we were doing a better job at addressing our gaps and addressing the inequities that we know exist in every school system. I'm just really proud that in less than two years, we've been able to not only create that office, but build some really important collaboration for how we're looking at instructional equity, how we're looking at student discipline, how we're looking at hiring and retention, um, and how we're looking at facilities in just a much more robust way that brings in what students need at the forefront and what we can do as owners of this system to change that right? And to give students who need more, the more that they need. Um, and that's, it sounds so simple now that we're talking about it, but, you know, it was a pretty big feat. And even just leveraging that leadership that we did build in the office to be able to speak out and really push for policy that would change some practice in the district uh, has been profound. And a failure that is, uh, that has taught you the most. 
Um, that one's going to be a little interpersonal, which has been the messaging is just as important as the message. Mm-hmm. And oftentimes I have had to take a step back and think about how I'm coming off and coming across with leaders who have been in their positions for, in some cases, longer than my lifetime. And just making sure that I'm being uh, invitational and not confrontational. Messaging is just as important as the message. Remembering a moment where um, there was a good bit of back and forth between me and one of my colleagues, and I, I just walked away from that really understanding that I was not effective in making progress because I was so preoccupied with being right in that moment that uh, we had to completely start over again. You know, kind of walls down, just becoming more empathetic about what each of us was saying and being able to listen to one another. Um, there was a huge, I think, failure that I just uh, have learned from and it has allowed me to, to broach these conversations in a much more careful way. Mm. And from that, did you take with you an empathy practice or a mindfulness practice or a a certain set of tools that as a leader you wanted to develop to make sure that the next time you're in that arena, you're showing up in the way that you want to be? Yeah, I think that the why, starting off with the why for me has been a really powerful connector. Like I'm just not talking about this as a policy wonk, right? I I have either lived it personally or I have direct experience that people feel this way. And so connecting this idea, which otherwise could seem like it is a theory, right? Or like just a theoretical practice to what it actually means for kids, how our students feel and the importance of understanding how difficult the environment that certain kids are in might make this practice that we have as a school system um, not serve them. And, and that, that's just something that we have to reconcile with. When you think about success um, for Gwinnett County and its schools, say three, five, ten years from now, what's your vision? What, is it, what does it look like if you get to advance a real agenda for equity? It looks like a student being able to enroll in any Gwinnett County school and have a high quality life after they leave. Everton, you are such a unique leader with so much time ahead of you. I cannot imagine what the next five, 10 and 30 years are gonna look like for you and your career. What was the moment that you knew that you had to, do, had to make this run and that you were gonna take a step forward? It was when I first came back home uh, in October of 2017 and did a little bit of research on the school board and was very shocked at the misrepresentation, but uh, went to my first school board meeting. The entire meeting went by without a single mention or discussion of teaching and learning. And for me, I thought that being a school board member should be much more about how we are dedicated to interrogating and improving our systems for instruction, that we should not just be singularly focused on the operation and management of a large business, which a school system also is. There was a missing voice 
clearly rooted in that professional aspect of the role and of the job. How could we be improving in an instructional capacity if not for board members who were also interrogating the, the teaching and learning systems, right? And when I came to the role, I was simultaneously leading cohorts of instructional coaches across the country. And so there was this really beautiful commitment and connection to teachers and teaching that was fairly bipartisan. We, we run uh, partisan school board races in the county still. And it allowed me to speak singularly to, I think, a concern that people were just wanting more support around, not with not to mention, you know, all of the demographic uh, points that I already mentioned, but it was really the actual job. It was the actual role and the connection to the work that I had done that let me know that, okay, I, I cannot walk away. Like this, this is something that I not only need to think that I am qualified to be able to do, but that I must do right now. That's so powerful. Um, there are somewhere there sits someone who is you, uh, five years ago, she might be in a classroom or she's, you know, she is in a job and she sees the problems in the world and the need to fix them. What's your advice for her in taking that first step forward? Do a lot of research, <laughs> um, try and also be open to trying multiple roles in multiple settings and structures. Uh, I think I felt the same way and immediately had the conviction to study policy. That's why I left for grad school. In doing so, you know, I kind of did some research in my master's thesis in a nearby, in Oakland Unified, and then started working in other districts, moved to D.C. to do some federal policy work in Obama's White House. Every time I had taken a different role in a different setting, I got a new experience about the lever of change in that space and became more encouraged or more discouraged, depending on where I saw the impact. Ultimately, for me, I like to have the connection between individual policy and practice and direct change and to be able to see uh, the impact on individual students or people based on that change. You know, when we gave our teachers a $3,000 raise, we were able to see impact there. Um, more of them stayed. And, and that's uh, small levers where you can say there, there's impact that I am causing right now with these people in this space. What would you say is different about you as a leader today than five years ago? What has is, what is evolved in Everton through your experiences? I'm more psychologically aware. Um, I have developed a clear ability to understand the why behind what someone's saying and then anchor in similarities that I find that in that person's statement or communication with my why to have a conversation that doesn't become so adversarial so quickly. It's been really fascinating to see how much you can get folks who start off with a little bit of an issue with something that you said or something that they think you believe to walk away thinking like, I, I really do believe that the means, our difference around the means cannot separate us from the fact that we ha have the same ends in mind. 
Mm. And, and it's because I've been able to, I think, really clearly understand what is underneath and what values and beliefs are underneath what somebody is saying and to be able to just ask more questions about that value and belief and then affirm that value and belief that I've been able to uh, bring people along and represent in a way that, that I think really addresses all students. It sounds like you have a definition of equity leadership that is unique to you, and it's more about policy. Somewhat. Um, the policy is incredibly important, and it is always something that I keep in my mind. I have learned not always to lead with the policy, though. I've, I've been leading more with the values, the belief, and the rationale because um, policy language is boring <laughs> and, <laughs> and it is easy to misinterpret or to, you know, construct uh, fear or worry around in a way that I think kind of obfuscates the whole thing and takes away from the ultimate goal of the policy. And so I've had to nuance my messaging and conversation so that it, it makes people, it disarms people, right? And it, it brings them into thinking about an idea that, and seeing value in an idea that they otherwise might not have. So Everton, I want to do some short answer, kind of a short, uh, short question and answer round. Um, if you could snap your fingers and change one thing for kids, communities, schools, what would that be and why? Mm. One thing is so hard. Mm -hmm. I, I would want for students to be more active leaders of their own learning and, and for us to create the opportunities for them to be able to do so. And is there a, a policy suite or a policy choice that, that would facilitate that? To begin, I think it's important to think about how our systems bring student voice in, how meaningful that is, um, and then create constructive moments in their curriculum that um, allow them to lead the learning. And uh, I think that Sometimes the structure of standards and curriculum are didactic in form that forces us into this position of I hold the knowledge and I have to give it to you and then I have to assess you on said knowledge as I have interpreted it for you. Um, and there's meaning making and learning and power and students being able to craft their own understanding Maybe it's not specific policy, but it's an opportunity for teachers to identify ways to bring in student voice and to allow students to construct that meaning making, as well as finding leadership, structured leadership opportunities for students to speak on policy and to help co-create with teachers, with board members, with, you know, execs and, and, and district leaders to understand how policy works and to be um, advocates and contributing voices in that policy making for all of them. And if there is one tool or resource, maybe it's a book or a book that you give the most, a podcast that you listen to, that you wish every equity leader in the country could have access to, or, or, or more than access would actually read, use, listen to, what would that be? Um, 
it's it's a principle um and i think well a Hackett's book on adaptive leadership has really shaped how i viewed some of the challenges before us where it is not simple to address the problems that we see and find as just technical right oftentimes they are adaptive challenges and i think a lot about how adaptive solutions um have to get at the mindset the values and the beliefs that people hold and that has really allowed me to to speak as a leader in the community around the changes that i think we need to see it's it's been something that other leaders i've seen bring into their practice because some of us have been able to model it and that's i think just really important to remember because you know, none of this work is done because you've passed a policy or because you've hired this one person right and it's it's always i think understanding where in your system you can make more room for you to have the important conversations that will ultimately maintain values maintain beliefs right shift some of them if they need to be and and that's not it's ongoing work it is intentionally going to be ongoing work um and that's why you know we have a school system that continues to exist over time kids don't just stop in third grade and that's it for school we continue to educate them over time because learning is an iterative and gradual and constant process and so should be the learning that all of us do as leaders as educators and and that is adaptive work. Hmm. And who's a hero that inspires you today? Stacy Abrams. Can you say why? She's the first elected official to encourage me to run for school board. I did not know her <laughs> when I came back home just in full transparency. Um and we met at a Gwinnett County Young Dems meeting. um where i was just a little hesitant around at that point she just started speaking and i you know did a little quick research on my phone and realized that she was minority leader you know saw that you know, she went here did that and there was a lot of parallels in and some of our story and just wanting to see things differently in our communities i came up and and spoke and she just believed in me and encouraged me in a way that i knew connected to the belief and encouragement that I wanted to see for people in my community. And that modeled leadership I've also carried into my own path and my own world um where I I intentionally saw opportunities to lift students up as leaders, you know, encouraging them to come to the board meetings and speak about the changes that they want to see in their schools and why and trusting their intellect. and believing that they as learners can also be leaders um has has really been powerful for me and and I see I see her I see Lyra Abrams as a as a strong model of that what advice would you give to your your 23 year old self um knowing all that you do right now <laughs> come out earlier <laughs> um the people who most people don't care and the people who do will be quiet because they'll be overshadowed by folks who will uh, support and affirm you though it will always continue to be a challenge and will always be something that we should uh, be vigilant and fight for uh, particularly around 
uh, equal rights. I, I think that being true to who you are and leading authentically in yourself um, is, is always something that you can find tremendous strength in. Okay, lightning round questions. Uh, when you feel overwhelmed or lost, what helps you refocus? Prayer. What's one thing about the next generation of leaders that excites you for the future? Courage. Why courage? Um, I am seeing young people take up uh, action in the streets in a more inclusive way, um, more voices, more faces than, than we've ever seen before. And just, you know, the, the courage to not be our ancestors, but to still fight for the same things that they did is, is a really uh, a deep, deep moment right now. What's important about you being in the seat that you're in today? It shows people, shows more people what's possible and how you can authentically lead without compromising your values and how that can bring people in who otherwise you might feel like you had to lie or skirt around the truth and the central issue. Hmm. Everton, you sincerely inspire me. I thank you for doing this with us. Where can people find you on the internet? Everywhere. Uh, my email, Instagram, Twitter, it's literally, <laughs> just, just Google, <laughs> Google me, it all comes up. Uh, but I, I'd say I'm really active, more so uh, on Facebook, on my uh, campaign uh, and candidate Facebook page, as well as um, every single handle is, is Everton Blair. <laughs> sincerely thank you so much for your time your generosity of insights and for all that you are doing today i can't wait to see what's ahead for you thank you thank you i appreciate it okay cindy you were right oh yeah Yep, Everton is pretty awesome. His journey from going to school in Gwinnett County to teaching to policy work at the district, then federal level before moving home and serving on the board is pretty remarkable. Absolutely. I mean, you can tell that he's got a great head on his shoulders. But on top of that, he also has a pretty intimate understanding of his community that would be hard to replicate. I appreciated him naming that while Black students made up a plurality of the school system, no one who looked like them had ever sat on the board. Connecting that with his reflection on being the first in his family to run for office because of their fairly recent lack of access to the vote and political opportunities brought up many thoughts for me on the ways to think about representation. I couldn't agree more. One great resource Everton mentioned was a book by Ronald Heifetz that is called The Practice of Adaptive Leadership. We'll include it in the episode guide on the Lee blog as I think it could be helpful to some of our listeners. Great idea. We'll also include some links to Everton's site and social media for anyone who wants to learn more or reach out to him. A full transcript and episode notes can be found at info.educationalequity.org slash leaderstable. All right, Cindy, it's time for a quick break. All right, everyone, please stick around just a bit longer so that we can hear from you about all the awesome things that you as Lee members are doing to make a big impact in your own communities. Hey, Equity Leaders, I'm Genesis Keller, and I'm the manager of digital communities on Lee's communications team. I support the different digital communities that Lee offers, including our Workplace platform. Workplace has a look and feel of traditional social media, but allows Lee to maintain a private social media network exclusively for Lee members. 
Through this platform, members have direct access to the Lee Network, where they can share and get access to important updates, resources, and other info. They can also stay connected with other members from previous programs and fellowships. If you're interested in learning more about these groups and getting connected to Lee members from across the country using Workplace, please reach out to Lee's communications team at digital at educationalequity.org. You may be stuck working from home right now, but there's always plenty of people to connect with on Lee's workplace. We really hope to see you there. Hey listeners, thanks so much for sticking around. For this episode's Member in Action, we talked with Lee member Alejandra Ramos Gomez, an educator from Dallas, Texas, who teaches her students in a very special classroom. It's a two-way, dual-language, gifted and talented, kinder-first classroom. One day, everything's in Spanish for them, and then the next day, everything's in English. So I have like a teacher partner in English, and they like switch back and forth. In early spring of this year, when the pandemic hit, Alejandra, like the rest of the country, found herself stuck at home. She quickly realized that she could combine her skills in teaching with another one of her passions and started streaming online Zumba classes for her online community. For me, dancing and moving heals. Like, it's it's huge. And I started that, that like, Zumba class the first week, like, during spring break, actually, because I was like, okay, this is going to happen. So it really helped me stay positive. It just kept, kept me in a good mood. And that mood was contagious because in less than 12 hours after writing a post on social media, she had almost 200 women from up and down North and South America wanting to join in on the fun. As the pandemic continued, her numbers passed 300 and she found herself teaching multiple classes a week and to folks much closer to home too. Then like the parents of my students joined, but it was kind of strange, you know, because I'm dancing like reggaeton and salsa and, and some of my students were like, oh, we've never seen Ms. Ramos move like that. And, but yeah, it was too, it was for everyone. While her initial classes were streamed live, Alejandra's life has gotten a bit busier as she prepares for the new school year. She has transitioned to recording many of her classes so that her community can watch them on demand as they continue through these difficult times. In a world filled with lots of uncertainty and anxiety, Alejandra is enriching and bringing communities together through the power of dance. And it was nice because I always talk about this quarantine that has shown me that there's really no borders online. So I can be teaching people in Mexico and Ecuador and wherever they are and in the U.S. and we're all dancing together and like it doesn't matter if there's a border or not, we're, we're just together. Once again, that was Lee member Alejandra Ramos Gomez. If you want to find out more about her or other Lee members who are making an impact, Check out the episode show notes at info.educationalequity.org slash leaderstable. Thanks so much for listening to the show this week. You can subscribe on Spotify, Apple, or wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, please give us a review. You can also write to us at leaderstable at educationalequity.org. Our show is hosted by Jason Lorenz, Cindy Centeno, and myself, Taylor Stewart. This episode is edited by Nolan Peters and produced by Graham Fortin. I'm Taylor, and thanks for pulling up a seat at the Leader's Table. Be well, stay safe, and until next time.